0: Yesterday, my family and I had the privilege of attending a wedding of two very dear friends of ours and dear friends of this church. And something that many of you who were there with us may not have known is behind the scenes that there was no wedding coordinator. And so, a lot of people came together, and behind the scenes, the night before, the weeks leading up to it, and especially... Yesterday morning, before all the guests arrived, we all kind of pooled our resources, all hands on deck, to make sure everything worked out well. You had the usual suspects who were doing their particular jobs, their giftedness, their training. You, of course, had the florist, the professional florist, who was assembling all of the centerpieces and the arrangements behind the bride and groom. You had the chefs in the kitchen preparing lunch for everyone you had the wait staff preparing the tables and the linens but you also had those who were not gifted in particular areas that were just serving putting silverware on the tables even my three children got involved putting place cards and all of the napkins for the various guests setting up different water bottles and wedding favors on the chairs You had the bridesmaids and the groomsmen making sure they looked proper and that the groom and the bride looked as best as they could, all because they wanted the wedding to be as perfect as possible. And what you saw was similar to what we do in the church. We all have a spiritual gift. And like that florist and like that chef, we have a particular task to be used for the encouragement, the edification, the building up of the church. At the same time, we all as believers often do different tasks that are not our spiritual gift. Cleaning up, encouraging, helping one another. And like all of us who were believers yesterday, we all did so ultimately to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And through that, to serve the bride and groom and their families. In the same way, in the church, we use our giftedness and we also serve wherever we can, which may not be where we're gifted, to fill in the cracks in areas of service where there is no actual spiritual gift for that task, all ultimately to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and through that, serving the body. This is what we have been looking at in our series in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, looking at spiritual gifts. And this morning, we come to part three of spiritual gifts. If there was a subheading for this particular sermon, it would be body life, body life. And understand that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts specifically, as we have seen a lot already in First Corinthians, to address a sin issue a problem within the ancient Corinthian church, and that problem is their misuse of spiritual gifts. They had the spiritual gifts, to be sure, but they were using them for their own glory. They were even using them to put other Christians down. They were getting cocky. They were labeling certain gifts as making them better than people who had different gifts or uh, other gifts. And so Paul is addressing that, and in doing so, he gives us these great chapters on service and spiritual gifts, and as we'll see in a few weeks, even the greatest chapter in all of Scripture on biblical love. But this morning we find ourselves in verses 8 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. Let me read that for you. He says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. This morning, just two points. Two operational components of spiritual gifts. Two operational components of spiritual gifts. In other words, we are given two insights into how spiritual gifts operate within God's plan for the church. His infinitely wise plan for the church. Two operational components of spiritual gifts. The first is the diversity of spiritual gifts. The diversity of spiritual gifts. We find this in verses 8 through 10. And in these three verses, Paul lists for us nine different spiritual gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. In other words, these are not all the spiritual gifts. And we even know that there are other places in the New Testament where there are listed spiritual gifts That are not found in this list that we are looking at this morning, namely the lists found in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. But that's okay, because Paul's intention here in this passage is not to give us a complete rundown of all the possible spiritual gifts. In fact, his intention here is not even to give us an explanation of these particular gifts his overarching point is to highlight the variety with which he blesses the church. Variety. That's the key word. Variety. And we've seen this already, especially a couple weeks ago. We know that these particular gifts were in the Corinthian church or at least experienced by the Corinthian church, by Paul and other teachers and apostles who had visited them. We're talking again about the Corinthian church that he is writing to. So 2,000 years ago, the early church, the beginnings of the church. Jesus Christ had just recently come and been resurrected. And so he uses those prominent spiritual gifts that they would be familiar with to emphasize the variety with an aim to end the disunity that I mentioned earlier that was being caused by their wrong view of the gifts. We saw in verses 4-6 through that there are varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, and varieties of effects. In today's passage, Paul is going to illustrate that. Again, taking that concept of variety and saying, here's what I mean. Even though it's not his purpose to explain each spiritual gift, he does mention these nine with the implication that the Corinthians, to some degree understood or recognize at least by name, these particular spiritual gifts. And so I want to take some time describing each gift for you. Again, not his point. His point is to highlight the variety. But because the Corinthians would have been familiar with these gifts, and maybe we are not familiar with these gifts, and because I am an expository preacher, I am going to explain each of these nine gifts to you. A key underlying theme for us practically, as we have seen throughout this series and will continue to see, is simply we must serve. We have the privilege to serve. And to serve most effectively, we need to recognize and utilize our particular spiritual gift. And as I go through this list, I need you to understand that some of these gifts no longer exist. In other words, they have passed away. They did exist. They are not imaginary, but God used certain spiritual gifts for a certain purpose, and in His plan, they are no longer necessary. They were used by Him for a time when the church was being established in order to validate the message of the gospel and its messengers, the apostles and the early Christians, You need to understand, to put that in context, and we'll talk a lot more about this, especially when we get to chapters 13 and 14, that Christianity was considered a cult back then. Now when you hear about a cult today, it's perhaps just not really a thing. You know, they come and go. Uh, We've had some tragic ones even in our lifetimes where people were uh, committed suicide and things like that following a false prophet, a false messiah. But understand that back then in that culture, as is the case with some uh, countries today, but not so much our country, or at least not the West Coast, religion was a crucial part of the culture. Everyone was religious. And there were main key religions, like Judaism and the Greek and Roman polytheism that you probably studied in junior high, high school. And so here's this new religion, and to top that off, the person that they are worshiping, many of them know about, and some even saw him die, and so it was a very strange religion to them. It was breaking through the mold of established religions. In fact, even trying to take an established religion that was thousands of years old, Judaism and saying this is actually a continuation of this as prophesied in Judaism. And so people were confused. They said Christians were following someone who was dead. They called them cannibals because the the secular world misunderstood the Lord's table, right? Eating the body, drinking the blood of Christ said these people are cannibals. They called each other brother and sister in Christ and yet they would marry each other and so see they practice incest, it's very strange, they're marrying their brothers and sisters and so people are very confused. And so why would we listen to you? As you're preaching all of a sudden, for example, you say well bring me your dead child who is now no longer dead, now do you believe me? And so it affirmed what they were saying. It affirmed the power of God. It affirmed the reality of the gospel. So with the establishment of the church, these are no longer necessary. And again, this is all within God's plan. All that to say that there are some gifts that we will discuss this morning and in the coming weeks that nobody has in the church today, despite what they may claim, despite what their pastors may claim. Nevertheless, it's a wonderful testament to the way God works and has worked through spiritual gifts and the variety He has chosen to create and grow the church. These are good things. These are wonderful things. People abuse them today. People are confused about them today. It's kind of put a bad taste in our mouths as evangelical Christians. But understand things like the gift of miracles and healings and tongues were a wonderful thing and part of God's plan. Don't let the misuse of them today tarnish your understanding of how God used them before. Now keep in mind this comes on the heels of Paul saying that the Holy Spirit gave spiritual gifts for the common good. He begins this passage with the word for in the beginning of verse 8 and shows that he's again about to illustrate just how this was done. The variety. So, starting right off in the beginning of verse 8, he says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. The word, word, in these first two gifts indicates verbal communication, utterance. It denotes a speaking gift. Word of wisdom means someone who had the spiritual gift of being able to articulate God's wisdom by the power and impulse of the Holy Spirit. This starts with the understanding that true wisdom recognizes that God exists and recognizes the gospel and the centrality of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And everything else in life is to respond to that grace. This is clearly distinct from worldly or secular Wisdom. Now keep in mind, this was a spiritual gift. So, this was something that was supernatural, superhuman. It wasn't just someone who was really smart and really wise, it was someone who was given a supernatural wisdom directly from God. And in Paul's day, some of the practice or use of this spiritual gift became revelation, it became scripture. And you can see why this gift was so important back when there was no New Testament to turn to. They had no New Testament. It was being written at that time. They had the Old Testament, but they understood that things had changed. There was a new covenant. And so when someone needed to know the mind of God or needed insight into a situation whereas today we can turn to the New Testament, the Scriptures, printed, digital, memorized, in hundreds of different languages. They didn't have that, and so someone with the spiritual gift of the Word of Wisdom could come and help. The second is like it. Word of Knowledge at the end of verse 8. Also a speaking gift. This focuses more on communicating insight into the Word of God. Explaining and correlating gospel facts it's associated with what we would call today doctrine or theology. As this was a spiritual gift, this was not a knowledge one acquired through study, but from the Holy Spirit directly as the need arose. In the first century, this also could have turned into Revelation, Scripture. For these first two gifts... Again, just having wisdom or knowledge was not the gift. It was also the ability to impart it to others. Word of wisdom. Word of knowledge. The ESV says utterance. The NIV says message. And I bring this up because it emphasizes the goal of all spiritual gifts, which is not just for you yourself to have something, such as wisdom or knowledge, not just for you yourself to enjoy that gift, but it is to be used for building up others, serving others, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the common good. The next spiritual gift he mentions going on into verse 9 is faith. Faith. We know that saving faith is a gift from God. So all believers have been given this gift of saving faith. Ephesians 2.8 tells us this. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Because remember, he's talking about the diversity of gifts, which means all Christians have different gifts. And they are given to those at the point of salvation or to those who are already believers. So we know he's not talking about saving faith here because all Christians have it. And they weren't Christians before they received it. What the spiritual gift of faith is, is that special endowment of trust in God that surpasses the average believer. It's the kind of faith that in the midst of danger and even death or persecution of the highest order is so trusting of God that others are encouraged in their own faith just by being witness and unbelievers testify to the reality of God. It is the faith that allowed people we heard of and have read about that sang hymns of praise to their God as the nails were being driven into their wrists as they chose to be crucified to die like their Savior. It is the kind of faith that allows people to preach the gospel as their enemies are lighting the wood at their feet, and doing their best to utter the gospel as their skin melts off of their body. It is supernatural faith. This kind of faith in Paul's day was also a wonder-working faith. A faith still expressed through prayer and appealing to God that was often connected to healings and miracles. It makes sense then that the next spiritual gift is healing. You'll notice that gifts here is plural. It simply refers to the various kinds of sicknesses that could be healed. Again, this is a spirit-enabled superhuman ability. So this was not just a really good doctor or really good scientist. It was the kind of healing that you saw Jesus do. It wasn't, let me wrap this up, give you a crutch, take these antibiotics for a couple weeks, make sure you take them all, and you'll get a little bit better. That, that's never going to go away. You might have a limp for the rest of your life. We might be able to get rid of it if you want surgery. No. The gift of healing was always instant and complete. And even in Jesus' life, when it took more than one stage, it was because Jesus was trying to serve a purpose or teach a lesson, such as the blind man who saw blurry people walking like trees, and then again, he saw clearly. It wasn't because Jesus couldn't do it. He was teaching a lesson, and in that context, it becomes clear what that is. Again, superhuman ability. This is a gift that is no longer given today. To be sure, God can still hear, heal and heal miraculously. That's not what we're talking about. It's no longer a gift where an individual Christian can choose whom and when to heal at that individual's will. Yes, in God's sovereignty. Yes, only by, by the power of God. But that's the distinction between God doing something miraculous because you're praying or someone's in the hospital, don't know what happened, church was praying, cancer's gone. That's not a spiritual gift. A man didn't go up to him or a woman didn't go up to him and said, in Jesus' name, I heal you. And then the cancer was gone. God did that on His own not through an individual that he had given that spiritual gift. So you see the difference. Even while the apostles were still alive, we have testimony of the fact in the epistles that the gift of healing was diminishing. Even in their own lifetimes, it was fading away. You have several of the apostles' close friends who had physical ailments that the apostles did not or could not heal. Timothy's stomach, Trophimus's and Epaphroditus' illnesses. Why not heal them? Why, Paul, take a little wine for your stomach? Why not just say, hey, get the local elder to heal you? Because even in their own lifetimes, God was fading out these miraculous gifts. None of those people were dealt with apostolic power. And those are just the ones we have recorded in Scripture. The ability to heal was given to the person who received the gift. It was given to the person who was to heal. Not to the sick or the handicapped individual. Why do I say this? Because today's misguided at best, demonic at worst, faith healers who don't fully heal, they blame the sick person's lack of faith. That's not what the spiritual gift is about. They were given a gift and they could do it. You don't blame the person because you're too sick, you don't trust me. That's not how it works. And if you look at the reason for these gifts in the first place, how would that work? To have a miracle, a miraculous ability given by God to prove that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, and to say, well, you know, it's like, you know, slapping that electronic to see, you know, maybe the contacts on the battery need to be jiggled. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Well, that's not powerful at all. That doesn't make the unbeliever fall to his knees and say, Hallelujah, baptize me right now. Makes them walk away and say, "Eh, not much better than that statue of Zeus over there." Okay, it's a sham what these people are doing, and it's sad. Well, into verse ten. Then we have the affecting, or working in the ESV of miracles, and so like healing, this was the performing of supernatural activities. This would include all kinds of acts outside of the laws of nature except for healing. Why not healing? Because that's its own spiritual gift. So these would be all types of other miracles. Well, what kinds of things then? Well, in the record of Jesus' and the apostles' lives, we have several of these. Turning water into wine. Raising the dead. Calming the raging storm turning a lunchbox full of food into enough to feed thousands. Miracles such as those. Clearly among the gifts that are no longer in the church, but also a powerful example of how they were to be used. And what better way to show that the God you proclaim is the one true God than in the midst of your gospel preaching and testimony, you raise someone's dead child to life. Or, like Jesus, and why the apostle said, Hey, they gotta go home. There's no food here. There's no agora close by. Send them home, Jesus. They're, they're hungry. Jesus says, No. They need to hear more. You feed them. And the miracle, you're familiar with it. Again, all of it for the church, the growth of the church, but currently being abused by the Corinthians. Next is prophecy. Prophecy literally means to speak forth. And as a spiritual gift is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course when we hear prophet or prophecy, that's what first comes to mind, the Old Testament prophets who received direct revelation from God and then delivered it verbatim to His people Israel. The person with the gift would receive, then communicate direct and specific messages from God. These were intelligible messages that were delivered orally. The purpose was to build up, encourage, and comfort the people. We see that in chapter 14, verse 3. Although some believe and argue that the gift of prophecy still exists today, in the sense that anyone who is gifted in speaking forth the truth, so pastors, Bible teachers, preachers, the difference is that modern preachers such as myself speak from the completed Scriptures, whereas the one with the gift of prophecy was given direct revelation from God. Next, distinguishing of spirits. This spiritual gift actually goes hand-in-hand with the gift of prophecy. It is discerning or determining whether something someone says is truly from the Holy Spirit or from somewhere else, namely a human spirit or his own mind, or even a deceiving evil spirit, which we have examples of in the New Testament and Old Testament. This gift would be a check, on the one who is prophesying or claiming to prophesy. So then you had someone who had the, the spiritual gift of the discerning of spirits and can say, yes, this is from the Lord, what He is saying. Because in 1 Timothy 4.1 and 1 John 4.1, we are told of deceiving spirits, that some will fall away to them, they will believe them, These deceptions can be very convincing and possibly even sway true Christians. So the gift of distinguishing spirits was very important in a time when there was the gift of prophecy. Because you can see how someone who is trying to make a quick buck, not unlike many people today on the television set, would say, well, if this gift exists, hey... Let me go to that church and see if I can convince them that I have that gift. I'm speaking from God, and they should all follow me. And so there was checks and balances, as we'll see with other spiritual gifts in a moment, where you had someone who could discern whether it was from the Holy Spirit or from a uh, deceiving spirit. And especially with the gift of prophecy being held up so highly by Paul, and rightly so, as we'll see in the rest of this series, it was equally important that the words were tested and evaluated so as to make sure the intended purpose of helping the church was achieved. We need people with discernment today, but again, we don't need the spiritual gift because you can just say, well, let's see if what Pastor Roger was saying was true. Just click or open to the passage. Right? Again, the New Testament, the completed Scriptures, makes a lot of difference for whether these uh, gifts are necessary today or not. Um, a lot of times, people will ask, especially with the gift of tongues, "Then what is it? What are people doing today?" And uh, to answer that, um, I remind you that we do have a Q and A every few months. You can submit that question if you like. I have an answer. Just not, uh, no time today for that. Okay. As a side note, as I mentioned, this is a good reminder of the need for discernment today, but also a good reminder of the power and allure of deceiving spirits. With the way the world is today, really we don't need a demon to try to sway us. Our own sin can crave the, the allures of the world as it seeks to conform us. Why deceive us into following a false messiah when it is enough that we just follow the checkbook or whatever it may be, the popularity? Our next spiritual gift is the gift of tongues. Probably the most well-known yet most unknown of the spiritual gifts. What in the world do I mean by that? It's most talked about in the church today, especially among those we call charismatics, but unknown in that what most are talking about is not actually the gift of tongues if you compare it to what the Scriptures tell us. Again, we'll get into this more in uh, chapter 14 because Paul directly tells them how the gift of tongues or any of the spiritual gifts were to be exercised. But the gift of tongues was the ability to speak natural human languages. Not gibberish. Not ecstatic verbiage. What I mean is not going into a trance, eyes rolled to the back of your head, you start rolling on the ground, and in some sort of emotional flood, just speaking gibberish this spiritual gift was to be done under control it was not to disrupt a church service and not to be exercised if there was nobody there to interpret if you have ever witnessed someone claiming to speak in tongues especially in a church service you know that immediately they have violated those two I'm not making this up. It's clearly stated in chapter 14. Interestingly, this is also the spiritual gift that the Corinthians are most abusing, much like today. Except today they aren't really practicing the biblical gift of tongues. These people actually had the gift of tongues. The people doing it today don't even have a close imitation of it. And I do want to make a very clear side note. The majority of Christians or professing Christians that are practicing incorrectly the gift of tongues are never doing it with any malcontent or ill will. They just don't know. That's what they have been taught. That's what they believe. Some of them have been told that unless they speak in the gift of tongues or speak in tongues, regardless of profession of faith, they will not go to heaven when they die. I know of a friend whose mother was in the charismatic church who on her deathbed, faithful Christian for years, her charismatic pastor said, If in a few minutes you die, you will not go to heaven because you have yet to speak in tongues. Grossly abused, okay? But again, they're misled. And depending on how they grew up and how they were trained, there are many pastors who just don't know. And my point is, even if they are doing it with ill will, we need to have compassion. We are not to judge, we are to love them, we are to share the gospel when necessary. But back to our text. Just like the gifts of healing was not about a well-educated physician, so the gift of tongues was not about a gifted linguist, someone who picked up languages very easily. It was a supernatural Spirit-empowered ability to speak in another existing human language that the speaker does not know. Not learned a few phrases and kind of working their way through it. Oh, this is similar to a language that I've learned and I can share the gospel kind of through it, like Spanish and Italian, something like that. No, they, they knew nothing of it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were speaking and preaching fluently in another language. As such, it was important that there was someone there who had the spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues, as we see next. Again, this is a spiritual gift, so more than just someone who happens to speak the language or someone who's a great linguist, this is someone who has the God-given superhuman ability to interpret a language that is unknown to him or her. And so the person speaks in tongues. Chapter 14 says you are only to do it if it's to build up the body and if there's an interpreter. Why? Because the whole point was to share the gospel or to encourage the church. And what's the point if we're all speaking? I can't think of a language that not one person here knows. I almost said Russian, but we have two or three people who speak Russian. So Swahili, is that safe? What's the point if I start preaching in Swahili and no one's here to say, hey, here, here's what he's saying? Someone laughing because they know Swahili. There's probably some of this you know, n- melting pot, right? But you get the point here with the spiritual gift. Although the speech in utilizing the gift of tongues was to be directed to God, it still had its purpose of edifying other believers Much like when I pray in a few minutes, I will pray out loud to God, but out loud for the edification of the whole church, for your benefit. So without an interpreter, the gift was not to be exercised out loud. 1428 makes that very clear. All that to say, even if those who claim to speak in tongues today truly had the gift of tongues, which they aren't and they don't, they are exercising them incorrectly when speaking in a place where nobody is interpreting or if many are doing it at the same time, especially if they are disrupting a church service or any gathering, and especially if they are not speaking another known language that exists in society or in the world today. And again, we'll talk more about this in chapter 14 where all of these rules are found. So we have nine gifts that he lists. Again, not all the gifts are listed here and most no longer given by the Spirit to believers. But again, it's important that we are aware of these spiritual gifts. It's in Scripture. We need to know the Word, even if some are no longer operative. But there's a couple other reasons I want to give you why it's important to study these or know these. The first is to worship. Always to worship. Everything we learn from Scripture is to worship. We worship because we see the goodness of God in His provision. We worship in response to the infinite wisdom of God and His plan for the church. More to Paul's point, we worship because of the variety, knowing that God's plan was not just to cookie cutter all of us. He is not so ill informed and unwise that He just picks one thing and uses it for all eternity. He understands human nature. He sees the history of the world. I mean, it's the same thing. We can look at history. We can look at a time when people used things, built things, the industrial age, factories that would be severely outdated today, but we can look back and say, wow, that's amazing. Wow, that guy... Tesla was amazing. Edison was amazing. That country is incredible. Their history, our history. But none of that exists anymore. And the technology either no longer exists or it is so far gone that you couldn't even connect it back to this individual and his invention. But that cell phone wouldn't exist today without that proverbial... Key tied to a kite in a lightning storm, right? And in the same way, though they may not exist today, we can look back and praise and worship God and say, Wow, look what he used back then. Look what he did. And if you didn't already know about this as you're reading this, you could almost say, like, what's he gonna do? How are people gonna believe this message? The, the disciples were cowering and hiding, scared that they would be imprisoned or crucified too. How's he gonna do it? Oh! Miraculous gifts. Miraculous gifts to help establish the church. I would never would have thought of that. But God did and used those. The second way we can respond is to respond with action. We've seen in this in the previous verses and we'll see it a, again. We need to understand that every single one of us is part of that wisdom. Part of that provision. Part of that variety, but for a reason, for a purpose, for a goal. The building up of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. The church. That's part of his plan. To give us the privilege to be used, to serve one another. There's a reason. We're looking at two operational components of spiritual gifts, we've seen the diversity of spiritual gifts. And now the dominion of spiritual gifts. The dominion of spiritual gifts. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. In verse 11, one and the same Spirit works all these things. The same Spirit who gave, gave one gift to one person and a different gift to another, borrowing the vocabulary of verses 9 and 10, works these gifts in the church. This goes back to the varieties of effects we saw in verse 6. And here Paul is saying it is the Spirit who works in and energizes our spiritual gifts, reminding us that they are indeed supernatural, and reminding us they are indeed to be used. I want to do something for you here to go big picture. I want to connect this principle to the working out of our salvation. It doesn't get much bigger, practically speaking, than this. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, has that well known passage work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Christian, believer, you do it. Work hard, strive. Put in the effort. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We would all be toast without verse 13, which says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is a partnership. We are to work out our salvation. But that is more than repenting of sin and learning more about God. It is putting in the effort to obey, to serve. That is a critical component. And what Paul tells us in Philippians is that we must do our part, but it only works because God is working through us for His good pleasure. In the same way, when it comes to spiritual gifts, we must do our part We must figure out what our gift is. We must serve. We must use our gift. We must get involved, but it only works because God is doing His part. And whether we're talking about sanctification as a whole or spiritual gifts in particular, both the call to perform and the promise of God's help are undeniable reasons to use your spiritual gift. Paul closes verse 11 with a fact that we have talked about much already. The Holy Spirit distributes as he wills, and he distributes to each one. Each one individually, it says in the NAS. What that means is not one Christian has all the gifts, and not one Christian is without a gift. Each one individually. When we were going through verses 8-10 through in our last point, you probably noticed the pattern. Through the Spirit. According to the Spirit. By the Spirit. Again, the emphasis in all of these is that God is in control and specifically this Holy Spirit of who gets what gift. God is in control. He chooses. This is the norm. He does not sway from this. He determines. Then He distributes. And then He empowers. We've seen all of these truths before. And again, at the end of verse 11, just as He wills. What does this mean? the distribution of the gifts as He wills is positively a cause for worship, a cause for gratitude, a cause for praise, and negatively, no place for any complaint, any envy, or any boasting, because He gives as He wills. It's his choice. And so with that understanding, and that's key, you see, to what Paul is addressing with the Corinthians. This is why he keeps focusing on the variety and the sovereignty of God. He's basically saying, what are you doing bragging about your spiritual gift and making others with a seemingly lesser gift, less miraculous perhaps, less public perhaps, And making them feel like a lesser Christian. You didn't choose that. You didn't earn it. And even within his sovereignty of giving you that gift, now you're abusing it by getting cocky and boasting and making others envious because of your words. Not because of their own sin, because you're telling them they should be envious. And so you see in the context why Paul keeps emphasizing these things. Same thing for us. We shouldn't be envious. We shouldn't complain about our spiritual gift. We shouldn't complain about other's spiritual gifts. And we should be humble. And you understand that within the Christian life what humility is. Right? Considering considering others more important than yourselves. Considering others' needs in addition to your own. We have the perfect example in the Lord Jesus Christ? Ah, but there it is. The perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see His humility not just in the crucifixion. We see His humility as recorded for us in three three and a half years or so of ministry in which He came not to be served, but to serve. Humility in the Christian life, Humility in the Bible, in other words, humility as God has defined it for us and expects of us, is undeniably connected with service. To not serve is the opposite of humility. Because why don't you serve? My comfort, my time, my money, my car, my presence, my I, I do what I want. Service is others. Service is often ungrateful. Service costs money and way more important and valuable time, which you can never earn back. Time and money that the people you serve may not recognize or care about. It takes great humility to serve and service will instill in you even more humility. But it's a wonderful thing because we get to be Christ-like and then you will get to a point where you're so humble in service that when you start removing from your mind our world's fascination with accolades and uh, self-entitlement when you can do that and you just give yourself of others, almost like getting knocked, having the wind knocked out of you, whipped back against the wall, filled with incredible peace and joy. Then you figured it out. Then you got it. That's the Christian life. That's Christ-likeness. To give up so much that you're so afraid that you're going to go into a deep depression, but instead you are lifted to the highest heavens, as it were, filled with joy. And God doesn't leave us to our own. He gives you A supernatural ability within the parameters of how he desires us to live to serve one another. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the variety and in your wisdom, even. Instilling, us differences, instilling in us differences so that we could be humble and rely on one another and know others rely on us all according to your grace. Thank you for your wisdom in how you established the church, how you made yourself known to give human beings unheard of abilities. And Lord, we're thankful that today we still have spiritual gifts that are empowered by you, Pray that we would use them. Pray that we would serve. Help us to be humble. Help us to seek out needs. Lord, thank You so much for this privilege. Lord, we're so amazed sometimes that we have the privilege of working for a certain family member or just be a part of a well-known company. And yet, Lord, you have given us the privilege of serving the creator of them all. May we not take that lightly. Use us through our spiritual gifts and service for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and sing together.